us and the love of God. And uh, we, all, we were wondering why Chris didn't pick Hawaii for the love of God. But uh, I think they're both, both uh, good places for that. So in Virginia is for lovers. Any, anybody from Virginia? Nobody from Virginia. Wow, that's interesting, isn't it? All right, so uh, we are going somewhere new today, and some lucky person gets to pick the location, but that lucky person is going to have to be on the end of the row. So uh, let's go this way, and someone will pick out the lucky location. Let's see. All right, Andy, you get the choice. Let us know where we're going today. Open that up and tell us what it says. I hope the tape's not too uh, sticky. Yeah, mad work. Okay. Mount Everest, yeah, we're going to Mount Everest today, and uh, Chris sort of uh, asked me which one I would like to take of the of the four for this week, and uh, it was a no-brainer for me, Mount Everest, and some of you know why, and some of that's going to come out today. So we are going to Mount Everest today, and uh, we want to explore the immensity of God, God's bigness, if you would say it that way. So uh, we're going to see a video now, and I want you to think about how big God is. Lost it? It's not coming? And no chance of coming on the count of three. Okay, technical difficulties. So, um, many of you know uh, Mount Everest as being the highest point on the face of the globe. And uh, some of the statistics that I'm about to share about that will give you uh, somewhat of an idea of how big this mountain is. But it's suffice to say that the cruising altitude of 747s is 29,000, 30,000, maybe a little bit over 30,000 feet sometimes. And that's how high Mount Everest is, the highest point on the face of the globe. Uh, so if we could have the, the list of characteristics, um, we're going to jump back to that first. There we go. 29,000 feet. It's actually 29,000 feet plus. And base camp, where the climbers start their climb, is at 17,600 feet above sea level. Uh, the death zone is part of Mount Everest. Uh, any 8,000-meter peak has what's called the death zone at uh, 26,000 feet, roughly. Uh, literally, your brain begins to eat itself for energy because the oxygen level is so low, and that's why it's so dangerous oftentimes to climb an 8,000-meter peak because... Uh, you have the chance of brain swelling and uh, problems with your lungs and all kinds of things because of altitude. Um, the statistic 1 in 25, that's an old statistic. It's now about 1 in 50 and it's somewhere in that range. But uh, think of your chances as you try to climb Mount Everest. And other mountains are harder to climb. Uh, Kachanjunga is supposed to be the, hard, the hardest because it's the most fatal mountain to climb. And K2 is another one. 1 in 4 die climbing K2, uh, which is the second highest mountain in the world. Um, more die descending than climbing. So I have to explain that real quick because that doesn't mean more people are descending than climbing. <laughs> it actually just means that more people die coming down than, than while they're going up uh, because they're already expended all their energy. Um, 
nowadays, 500 people climb Mount Everest in a year. Uh, it's a, sometimes a zoo at base camp and on the climb, people getting stuck at the Hillary step and not being able to make it to the summit because there's so many people just clogged at that uh, step. And that's because of all the amazing work that Sherpas do to prepare the way so that the climbers actually don't have to do any technical actual climbing. It's just a walk up, climb up, step by step. Uh, permit costs $11,000. So if you choose Everest as your destination, uh, it's going to cost you. So just the permit to climb is 11000 and 80000 total cost because you're going to need a guide and uh, you're going to need those guides to pay the Sherpas to set up the lines for you. And so eighty average of $80,000, depending on whether you want steak and lobster at base camp and uh, many other things. Um, first ascent was in 1953 by Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary. Uh, and Edmund Hillary was touted as the man that climbed Mount Everest. But uh, both of these gentlemen agreed never to tell who got to the summit first, actually. So, oh, we got the video. Okay. So we'll finish the st stats real quick, and then we'll go to the video. Um, but uh, we don't know who actually climbed it first. And then... Uh, it was thought for many, many years that climbing Mount Everest without oxygen was absolutely impossible for the human body, that nobody could withstand working and climbing at a an air level of one-third of the oxygen you have at sea level. Uh, so extremely difficult. Everybody gets uh, breathing problems and headaches from the altitude. Uh, but Reinhold Messner did it in 1978. And to prove that he wasn't just lucky, he did it again in 1980, uh, first man to climb Everest without supplemental oxygen. So it can be done, now we know. So uh, as we've thought about these statistics, let's uh, watch the video and see, get like a flyover view of Mount Everest this morning. Maybe not. <laughs> That's it? <laughs> okay, no problem. So uh, I hope you get an idea of uh, how impressive. This is, just, this is just the start of the journey to Everest. If you want to climb Everest, it's going to take you like two months uh, because you have to actually fly into Kathmandu, uh, fly up higher 
uh, on a helicopter closer to base camp, hike up to base camp with your supplies, and then from base camp, you have to wait till a weather window opens, and while you're waiting, you're acclimatizing, climbing up, back down, up, back down, up, back down, until finally the weather window opens and you can continue to make your way to the top so that your brain and your body gets used to that kind of uh, altitude. Uh, it's an amazing journey. It's an amazing uh, uh, job to be able to do that. And um, if you have the finances to do that sometime, uh, you can uh, give it a try. So, but, um, so I want to just uh, impress on you, and, and I was hoping the video would do it, impress on you the power of God as we look at mountains. And it's not just a destination we chose and thought, well, uh, you know, this would sound good and work good philosophically. Uh, mountains are all through the Bible if you begin to think about it. And so uh, we want to see a little bit what the, what the Word of God has to say about mountains this morning, but also uh, a little bit of a lesson from when the disciples actually climbed a mountain and spent time with Jesus on that mountain. But before we begin, I just want to give you some tips about mountain climbing. If you're going to mountain climb, you need to, first of all, have your handy-dandy helmet to keep your head safe, right? So uh, this is called by climbers affectionately the brain bucket. So in case you uh, fall, this will save your brain. And uh, of course, you'll need a harness to be attached to something, right? So you have your handy-dandy harness and uh, cinch that up and ready to go, especially if you have large crevasses that you have to go across. And hopefully that harness is attached to something else, which would be uh, a climbing rope. Two different kinds of climbing ropes. I don't know if you knew it, but there's static ropes and dynamic ropes. One stretches and one does not, and they have different purposes. But I hope your harness is connected to uh, the rope and that that rope is connected to a person who can keep you safe, who knows what they're doing, who can guide you through the steps of climbing Everest. And then, of course, as you uh, climb higher and higher, you get to some icy spots. You need some serious equipment. So uh, you can have an ice axe like this with nasty sharp points on it to keep your, uh, keep your hands in the, in the ice, uh, connected to the ice. And then these nasty guys, crampons, and your nice solid boots for keeping your feet stuck to the mountain as well. Uh, all of these things... Uh, you need to mountain climb, and many, many more. And, uh, you know, there's some spiritual lessons to be gotten from this. Uh, of course, the Bible talks about the helmet of salvation. Hopefully you know the Lord uh, as your Savior, and He is protecting you. He is keeping you safe. And uh, also, we need a connection to God. So we have to have that safety harness and the rope to link us uh, to someone who really knows what they're doing and can guide us. And in our case, that would be God. And then we have the sharp instruments to connect us to the mountain. And I would just challenge you this morning to stay sharp during the message. So that's a little bit corny. You can laugh. So, uh, but, you know, it's, it's all fun and games uh, in some ways, but it's also serious business when it comes to the idea of mountain climbing. You put your life on the line. Men uh, have been enamored with mountains for many, many years, and uh, they have not just given their lives for mountains, they've also given their fortunes for mountains, and uh, some live all of their days dreaming about mountains and climbing mountains 
and sponsored by companies that promote their gear as they climb mountains. They are literally given over to this, uh, this climbing experience. But the scripture does talk about mountains. Psalm 20, uh, 121 verses 1 and 2 says this, and uh, I'll be reading the NIV. It says it just a little bit differently this morning. It says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. What a powerful statement. When we view mountains and we look at mountains and we think, uh, why did God create an uneven planet? Why did he place these huge structures on the earth for us to, to, to be in awe of it? Was it just to entertain us? Was it just to make us think that, uh, hey, this would be a great challenge, a good thing to climb? Or was there a spiritual purpose behind it? And I think Psalm 121 tells us that as we view mountains, the mountains that God has created, it should speak to us of him. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. As we look at God, the heavens show his, his handiwork. Um, there are many ways in creation to see and understand the work of God. And we see it in the mountains. We see it in the stars as well. And the scriptures say this about the greatness of God. Psalm 145, 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Unsearchable. As we think about the greatness of God in creation, it should affect us to understand how amazing, how glorious, and how huge God is and cause some reaction in our spiritual life. And we're going to talk about those reactions. As we look at creation, though, and we think about how big God is, we think about three important theological words. God is just not just big in size. We could talk about that, and we will talk a little bit about that. But he's big in his power. That's a little bit different. So we talk about his omnipresence, his omnipotence, and his omniscience. He's also great in the things that he knows. He knows everything. And he knows everything about you. And he is all-powerful, omnipotent. He's able to handle uh, any situation. He's able to bring infinite force to a problem that you may have. Infinite force to a situation the world is facing or the universe is facing. In fact, it was as simple as this when he created the universe to simply speak, and it was done. I hope that you have a big God. I hope that your concept of God is that large and uh, that much uh, of uh, that real to you. We could think uh, of how big God is in many ways, but if you think about the largeness of the universe and it's so difficult to get your mind around light years and how far away the edge of the universe is. But just think about this. The moon, which is the, close, the closest celestial body to us, uh, it is 225,000 miles away at its closest point in its, in its uh, orbit around the Earth. 225,000 miles away. How long would it take you to run there? I thought of it in my, my perspective. I run a nine-minute mile. Where is uh, Haley this morning? You, do you run a, more than a nine-minute mile? Less than? 
you know, less than. I figured that. Young people have it so easy these days. So I used to run faster than that, but can't, can't do it anymore. So, but uh, if I ran from the earth to the moon, if that was even possible, it would take me four years of constant running, never stopping to get to the moon. Uh, some people would make it faster, and some would never make it. I certainly wouldn't make it if, if I had to run all the time every day. The human body is not able. The next closest celestial body to us is Venus, and it is 2.5 million miles away. If you got in your car and you drove to Venus, I think it would take you somewhere around five years to drive to Venus at 60 miles an hour or something like that. Constant driving, never stopping. Um, And so these things are the closest celestial bodies to us, but then the sun is much, much further away. The The last planet in the universe, which I lost track which it is, whether it's Pluto or Uranus or some other thing that they've discovered, Uh, is much, much further than that. And then the nearest star, uh, so many thousand light years away, which, uh, you know, that's 200 and some thousand meters per second flying at that speed until you reach the nearest star with any kind of other planetary bodies. Just unbelievably immense, the universe, and God spoke, and it was created. The power of God, the immensity of God to create these things. But that's on a big scale. Think in a small scale. Your body is made up of billions of cells. And those cells are made up of thousands or millions of chemicals that have billions and trillions of particles, whether they're electrons, protons, or what is, uh, has been dubbed by Peter Higgs, uh, the Higgs boson particle, which is supposed to be the particle in an atom that creates mass, and it's so small that they can't find it. They don't know. They're just guessing that this particle exists, basically, and, uh, and, and trying to figure out if it actually does what they think it does, which is create mass in an atom. And guess what it's called? It's called the God particle, the God particle. So that last frontier out in universe, God is there. And even in the smallest, very smallest, unidentifiable particle in our own souls, in our own bodies, is called the God particle. God is there from big to small. So I think as we look at mountains and as the scripture calls us to look at mountains, uh, we are to consider What's our relationship with God? How well do we know him? How well uh, have we let his greatness change our lives? Let's go to Matthew 17. Jesus had a habit of going into the mountains as well. You know that um, when Jesus initiated his ministry, he was taken up into a high mountain. Do you ever think that possibly... Satan took Jesus up into Mount Everest? You would think it might have been around Jerusalem, but we don't really know what high mountain Satan took Jesus up to be tempted, but he showed him the kingdoms of the world. He may have taken him up to Everest, right? Um, But he also went 
to Mount Calvary as well. And there he died on a cross for our sins and every person's sins uh, to pay the penalty for our sinfulness, which is death. He died for us, but then he rose again. But there's another mountain in the scripture. Matthew 17 talks about the Mount of Transfiguration. So we're going to read a couple of verses here and then talk a little bit about why Jesus would take his disciples into the mountains and what this experience meant to them. It says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Uh, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And we're going to stop our reading there. What an amazing story. Jesus had the habit of going into the mountains. He went into the mountains to pray often. And in that case, we're not talking about 8,000 meter peaks, but we are talking about the mountains around uh, the Sea of Galilee. And it's very possible that uh, this high mountain that Jesus took them into was around Gennesaret, uh, the Sea of Galilee, or it was around Philippi, which he was recently in. Um, And around Jerusalem, there were very large hills, which are called mountains from time to time. And uh, so we're not sure exactly where Jesus transfigured himself. But we do know that Jesus often went into the mountains and often took his disciples into the mountains for many different reasons. I think one of the reasons that Jesus took his disciples into the mountains and why he revealed himself here in the transfiguration is, first of all, to humble them, to humble them. As we look at mountains, we think about how large they are. As we attempt to climb mountains, as we uh, exercise that force and realize what an effort it takes, it should humble us. I'll never forget uh, the first mountain I tried to climb. And uh, this is uh, Volcano Viarica in uh, Chile. And it is 9,400 feet tall. And it was about two hours away, two hours drive away from my house in Chile in the year 2009, I guess it was. And... Um, So we began to climb this mountain, and within 20 minutes of climbing this mountain, this is what happened. So that's uh, my mountain guide over there. He goes up and down the hills and the mountains all the time, not even breathing hard. And that circle, in that circle, that blob is my knee. (laughs) After 20 minutes of hiking at altitude, I I, uh, had to get behind a rock and uh, expel some 
bodily fluids and, uh, and just crash and die right there on the side of the mountain. So this was my introduction to mountain climbing a, a few years ago, and uh, it wasn't pleasant. So if there was anything I learned on that trip is how weak I really am, how weak I am. And so many people find as they uh, try different sports, different exercises, uh, and getting out into nature and doing certain things, you find out and you see just how small we are, just how incapable we are uh, of doing anything. And yet, I remind you, God spoke, and it was done. God has no limits in power. Uh, There's nothing like, how hard does God breathe when he climbs up things? Of course, Jesus did in his human body, obviously. But God, as a spirit being, doesn't sweat it. It doesn't bother him. And so he has created these things to affect our minds and our hearts. Do you know that men have even tried in the past, to imitate what God does, if you think about it. Back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 10, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. And we understand that uh, human beings at that time were congregating. They were gathering together in a plane, uh, and probably in the neighborhood of the country of Iraq now, and later to be called Babylon. And uh, they tried to build a city and a tower which would reach to God, which would reach to heaven. And we know how that wound up. God didn't allow them to build that tower at that time. He confused the languages, and so they weren't able to finish the project and went their ways. But all through the years, men have tried to imitate some of the great things God has done. Even today, you can go to Egypt and see the Great Pyramid of Giza. And uh, that pyramid is extremely tall, Uh, And I forget the actual uh, measure of that. I thought I wrote it down. I guess I don't have it here. But uh, extremely tall human structure, but so short, so small. I think it's uh, between 700, I think I read 700 feet, and maybe maybe 1,200 feet at the most. And so nothing like Mount Everest, 29,000 feet. And if you know anything about Mount Everest, it's sitting in the Himalayas, And right nearby, there are many 8,000-meter peaks and just uh, thousands of peaks just under that, just immense masses of rock in those areas. Uh, Man has even tried to build a tower that reaches heaven in Dubai, Uh, the latest effort. There's there's one in, uh, I think it's Hong Kong or Singapore over there that used to be the tallest building, and at one time, I think the Sears Tower was the tallest, and uh, and men just keep trying to build these structures. And the, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai uh, is, I think, only around uh, just a little over 2,000 feet high. And that's only 10% of one structure like this that God has lifted up from the, the earth called Mount Everest. So the effect of this on us should be to humble us. Do we understand how small and how fallible and how weak we are? I hope and pray that at some point in your life, God has worked through his Holy Spirit to bring to bear on your soul, uh, whether it's through creation or whether it's through some experience in your life, 
how fragile we are, how weak we are. All of us have been sick with something at some point or another. And some of us have been sick even to the point of death. And that near-death experience for some comes from something that a little creature that you even have to get a microscope to look at called bacteria or a virus that gets in your system and brings you close to death. And you feel weak and you feel at the end of yourself. God humbles us through those things. Sometimes we have experiences in our life that humble us. Maybe it's a car accident. Maybe uh, you are on the top of your physical game and, and uh, just leading the world in your, in your area and your job or in your activities that you do. And then all of a sudden, in an instant, uh, just in the turning of a head, in the blink of an eye, all of a sudden your life has come crashing down and you realize there's nothing you can do to get yourself out of this situation. There's nothing you can do to fix this. The only thing you have to rely on is that you hope and pray that God through the doctors or God through the fabulous ability the body has to regenerate itself and repair itself, that you someday will walk again, that you someday will breathe on your own again. And uh, we had that experience with our son, Daniel, who was intubated with open heart surgery back when he was less than one year old. And folks, with children, more than anything else, I think we learn how fragile we are, how weak we are, how helpless we are without God's intervention in our lives. Folks, this should humble us. This should bring us to the end of ourselves and help us understand we are fallen creatures. Our sins separate us from God. We are sinful creatures that offend God in so many ways and are not worthy of even speaking to him and directing our conversation to him. And yet, he lifts us up. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, the word says, so that at proper time, he may lift you up. So he humbles us. The disciples were humbled. They fell on their faces, it says in this passage, when they saw Jesus glorified in his natural, normal state, which is his, his uh, divine uh, uh, power, and they were humbled. They fell on their face. I hope that you've come to that place where you've been humbled by God in your life. But secondly, it should also empower us. It should cause us to see that there is help. When we look at the mountains and the amazing uh, structures that they are and understand that God formed that. God spoke and it was done. And uh, we know that mountains continue to form themselves and creation is in movement as well. Uh, but God does that with his power. He sustains us. He sustains our universe. And uh, through him, though we are so weak, he can lift us up. For ages, men have looked for safety and help in the mountains. Uh, many uh, military leaders have understood year after year, century after century, that the best place that they can be for protection during a battle is on the high ground. And hopefully, if you need a lot of security, then you can get in, into the mountains and make yourself an eagle's nest, like at the end of World War II, where 
the tyrant Hitler tried to protect himself, but men were able to scale those heights and, and, and take Hitler down. But uh, men look at, uh, all through the Bible as well for safety in the hills. And uh, God says, yes, look at those hills, look at those mountains, but understand my help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. As these disciples fell to their faces before God, Jesus said this, rise and have no fear. Rise and have no fear. Yes, we're fallible. Yes, we're weak. Yes, we're helpless. But Jesus says, rise, have no fear. If we have his blessing, we have his care in our life, then he will watch over us. He will take care of us. He will stand in the gap for us and meet our needs in so many different ways. It says, Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God and my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Let's not look to the mountains for safety anymore. Let's look to God for our salvation, for our refuge, for our stronghold in times of trouble. The biggest trouble you can have is uh, what we mentioned up here, that he wants to uh, lift us up and he wants to secure us and empower us in a saving relationship with him. He wants to save our souls, our lost and dying souls that are riddled with sin and corrupt. He wants to change that. For that reason, he died on the cross. And if you, by faith, will cry out to him and ask for his forgiveness, he is quick to respond and forgive and to cleanse and to empower and change and draw you to himself. But not only does he want that saving relationship, but he wants a secure relationship with us. He wants today not only to save you once and done for all eternity, have your sins washed away, but he also wants to secure you in your, your life day by day. He wants to be your rock every single day, the place that you go to hide. He wants you to feel that security and strength and immobility every single day through a close relationship with him and a continuing understanding of how great he is. His greatness is displayed as the song we, we sang earlier, in his mercy. His greatness is displayed in his forgiveness. His greatness is displayed in his love, so much so that Paul, uh, I believe when he wrote the Corinthians, or I think it's Romans, he wrote and talked about the four dimensions of God's love, that the, there's nothing higher, there's nothing wider, there's nothing deeper, and he gives four angles on the love of God because it's not just a three-dimensional thing it's a fourth dimensional thing that God is not limited by time and space and he uh, takes care of us and will love us so we can be sure in that relationship but the last thing that I think the disciples learned on this trip into the mountains was this in uh, Matthew 17 and verse uh, Nine, it says, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Earlier, they had tried to make 
tabernacles that each person in this vision that the disciples saw. Who was there? Jesus. Who else? Moses and Elijah. The problem is, yes, Moses is a man. Elijah is a man. But Jesus was the God man. And he alone is worthy of our worship. And he alone is worthy of our efforts to praise him. And that's all Peter wanted to do here. Just offering some praise, but he offered it to Jesus and Elijah and Moses. And Jesus says, no, we're not going to do that. God from heaven said, no, just listen to my son alone. And then Jesus told them, don't tell anyone about this until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead. He lives today, and he wants us now to go and tell. So not only should we be humbled by the power of mountains, we should be uh, empowered by it, receive our personal strength, and then inspired by it. Men have been inspired. Mankind has been inspired all through the years by mountains to do amazing things. Things like Reinhold Messner, we talked about when they said, Oh, this can't be done. Nobody can climb Everest without oxygen. And then Reinhold Messner did it. Uh, we should be inspired to do those things. And those men have gone out after climbing mountains and have gone to all of the Fortune 500 companies and given lessons on how that they can also be inspired to achieve great things in business or in health or in other areas of our life. But God alone is the one that can inspire us to the fullest to realize our God-given abilities. And he does that sometimes through creation, through mountains. And he did that for the disciples on this day. So the question for you this morning is, how is God inspiring you? Are you empowered by him? Have you been humbled by him? Are you in that place where now God not only has saved your soul, but now he's giving you some ideas about what you can do with his help. Yes, none of us all by ourselves can teach a Sunday school class. None of us alone would have the power to properly care for our children in the nursery or to, to participate in the worship team. But through God, these things, these services become amazing tools in God's hands to bring glory to himself. So the question is, what are you doing to serve God? What are you doing to bring solutions and, and glory to your life? Whether it's your family, solutions to your children, solutions to your job and the things that are going on. Are you relying on God? Is God inspiring you and directing you to do great things. Uh, he wants great things from all of us. Are you open to that? What area is God and through his Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning and saying, hey, you can do this. You can, you can work in Harvest Kids and we need help and we'll ask you in a moment to help with that. But in other areas, are you able? Thank God for a, a full complement of worship team this morning and it was uh, great. Like these Folks are using their talents to serve the Lord and being used of him. And I think each one would say, that wasn't me. That's God inspiring me and directing me to do things for him. I couldn't do it by myself. And so the question is, what would God have you to do with, your, uh, with his inspiration this morning? 
So as we wrap up uh, the message, that would be my uh, question and challenge to you this morning. Consider what areas is God working in your heart concerning? Maybe you don't know him as Savior. You don't have the confidence that he has washed you and forgiven you of your sins. He wants to do that this morning for you. And all you need to do is call on him. He maybe has saved you and cleansed you. And uh, now it's time for you to be empowered, to have the confidence in him, not to live life worrying and living conscious only of your weakness, but have confidence in him. And then last of all, giving you a vision of something great that he may want to do in your life today. What is God saying to you this morning? As the worship uh, band plays this morning and leads us in worship, uh, as we stand, we'll have a time for uh, God to work in our hearts. And maybe you want to pray right where you are. Maybe you'd like to come forward and pray up front. It's all according to your comfort zone. If you would like to talk after the service, we'll be here to talk with you and share your burdens and talk about what God is doing in your life. Uh, but let God do something great through his greatness in your life today.